Welcome back to the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. This is Fred Reno, your host. Today, I will share with you the second segment of my interview with Gabriele Rossi. In this segment, Gabriele explains why he left Jefferson Vineyards in 1995 and then was offered a position at Monticello to be the Director of Gardens and Grounds. Throughout the segment, he will share many observations about Thomas Jefferson, including Jefferson's drive to cultivate not just grapes, but plants and flowers in general at Monticello. You will also hear a very humorous story about when John Kluge came to Virginia, wanted to buy all 12,000 acres of the original land grant that George III had given to the Carter family, and the Carter's response. There's also a nice little humorous comment from Michelle Obama. Take a listen as we pick up the interview where I left off in the first segment of episode two. I get the picture. Okay. You get the picture. I've seen that movie before. Eventually, I, I decided for me it was better to leave. Monticello offered me a job, right? Because they were interested, you know, in keep going with their experiment. And they knew that my history started with propagation of plants when I was right. 15 years old. So that's why they offered me the job. And of course, I remember meeting with the president of Monticello and he said, you know, I'm fine to give you the job, but I don't know what will happen to your family because your salary will be one-third of what you were making there. And he was right, because eventually my wife left me because she was going crazy, you know. She couldn't stand anymore not to have any money. The children were ready to go to college. We couldn't, you know, pay for college, things like that. So she went crazy. Well, on the Monticello thing is big Thomas Jefferson yeah, fan since yeah, yeah. I've been a kid. Yeah. Why do you think, I mean, I understand phylloxera, okay, but yeah, yeah. why did he fail to be able to successfully grow grape and make wine. I mean... Okay, my feeling is... Uh, yeah, I want your opinion yeah, on this. My feeling is wildlife. And i tell you why. Uh, while he's in France, 1789, I think is the year, mm-hmm. uh, he writes a letter to Anthony Giannini, who was the person in charge of the orchard and the vineyard and everything, and said, do you think we will be able to make some wine this year? And Anthony Giannini answered, I will be happy to make some wine, to try to make some wine. But the grapes disappear year after year before they are ripe. Oh. So you see, and he sort of suggests that maybe the slaves were stealing the grapes, right? Okay. But why should they steal the grapes before they are ripe? The bird steal the grapes before they are ripe. Right. And actually, I can tell you this is a little bit a joke, but... I remember, uh, you know, an interview and they were asking me how do I check the chemistry of the grapes, you know, when to decide to harvest. I said, I look at which animal is coming to steal the grapes. Fascinating. If they are birds, 17 bricks. If I see a raccoon, it's probably 18, 19 bricks. (laughs) If I see a fox, it's over 22 bricks. So if you see the fox, you know that it's time to... Time to go in harvest. And it's true, you know. I mean, I'm sure... Uh, I don't know if you have seen in Monticello that uh, wooden uh, trellis system yes. that we have, right? And one day, I remember there was 
mama raccoon with five raccoons behind all eating grapes, right? Because the post was allowing them to walk on the thing, right? Okay. They were all eating grapes, right? And so they they told me they are eating all the grapes. That's fascinating. <laughs> it's beautiful. No, it's really interesting to me how some people don't have much respect for animals, right? But for me, some animals know much more than people. <laughs> well, they've had to survive a lot, haven't they? So they had to learn and yeah. they pass yeah. that wisdom yeah. on down. Yeah. So eventually you must have gotten, I don't know, maybe bored or something. You decided to start your own winery again in, what, 1997? Well, yeah, it was, it was actually uh, a person who was working for me, and now I forgot the name, right? That when I left, uh, when I left uh, uh, Jefferson Vineyard, said you should start your vineyard, you should start your own winery, right? And so I asked my wife and said, "Well, I'm not sure it makes sense, but maybe we can just start a little vineyard, right?" So we started a little vineyard up here, and uh, I remember that uh, when we prepared the soil, I realized that the depth of the soil was only four feet. So I said, well, you know, one acre will be all what we do and see what happens because I don't want to spend money in planting a vineyard in a place where the roots cannot go down. But we started with a, with a little vineyard. We had people, you know, that I was consulting for, which were starting vineyard, and so I sort of made an agreement with a vineyard that I could buy all their grapes. And so that's how the thing started, because in the beginning I was getting grapes from Blenheim before David Matthew bought See. the place. When he bought the place, I couldn't get the grapes from Blenheim anymore. Right. Right? And I remember yeah, that ABC came over and said, we want to be sure that you have a vineyard adjacent to your winery, otherwise, you know, we give you one week to plant a vineyard. Yeah, I can plant, you know, a vineyard in a week, right? Very interesting, right? So how much vineyard land do you own yourself today? I don't own anything because uh, this is owned by Farm Credit. The I see. house is owned by uh, uh, Bank of America. <laughs> no. But in here, I still have only one acre because they didn't want to invest on the thing. Then my son took over Redland Vineyard, which is two and a half miles from here, and he's living there, right? Okay. And Redland Vineyard is a vineyard that I planted in 1980 for Robert Carter. Mm. I don't know if you know the family. Robert Carter uh, was, uh, the Carter family got 12,000 acres from the King of England. I don't remember what year, George III. And eventually, uh, Robert Carter asked me to plant a vineyard in 1980, I planted that one. Eventually, when he died, the children were not interested in taking care of the vineyard anymore, so he was a vendor. But the wife of one of the oldest of the children, what's her name, Carol Carter, she asked my son if he was interested in taking over. I said, my son said, it would be wonderful for us to take over. And so he started to replant the old vineyard, and she gave him a house there, right? Is this is not is this the vineyard up at the orchard? No, this is two and a half miles. Oh, so it's just down here. Down here, right. If you go all the way to the end of the road and you turn okay. left, there is Redland Farm. I see. If you read about Redland Farm, you will find because the story is very interesting. When Mr. Kruge came over right. to buy some land, he wanted to buy back the 12,000 acres that uh, the King of England gave to the Carter family. And he bought 10,000 acres, and then he went to Robert Carter, and he said, I'm here with my checkbook <laughs> to buy your 2,000 acres. And Robert Carter answered, 
I'd rather give it back to the Indians rather than sell it to you. Ah, that's great. That that's I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, speaking of vineyards, I had one vintner say something to me that stuck in my mind, and I would love your opinion on this. He was saying to me, with some exception, he said. He said, Fred, I, I think some of the best vineyards in Virginia mm -hmm. have not been planted yet. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting statement because uh, when we came here, we look at Barbersville, you know, we look at a lot of places, we look at the Shenandoah Valley, and we love the Shenandoah Valley because uh, uh, the rainfall, the average rainfall per year was 10 inches less than in Charlottesville. But then the temperature was a little bit lower. Right. And so... My boss said, better we stay, Doreen said, better we stay here rather than go to the Shenandoah Valley. But the Shenandoah Valley has a lot of loamy soil, which is very attractive. So from the terroir without the climate point of view, just right. talking about the soil. Well, and, right? and it's limestone subsoils, correct? Exactly. exactly. Wow. So that is very interesting. And that's what I love. You know, my, my son uh, uh, worked also in a winery up there. The name is Muse. Oh, yes. I've been in right? I've been yeah, in Muse, yeah. 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 And you make the wine there, and the, the wine is beautiful because the soil, right? Yeah. The wine. I was very impressed with their white blend, their own blend, yeah, yeah, when yeah, I had it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so we exchange some grapes sometimes. Okay. <laughs> How much wine, if I might ask, do you produce under your own brand these days? I need to ask myself. I think six thousand five hundred gallons, seven thousand gallons. Yeah. Gotcha. You know. And what's your favorite varietal to um, grow and make wine out of? <laughs> <laughs> you make me laugh because... Uh, or is there a favorite? <laughs> I had uh, so many uh, discussions with, uh, you know, my son on when he was replanting Redland. I said, what should we plant? What should we plant? And uh, I said, uh, what about... Uh, uh, don't laugh now, okay? What about Chasselas d'Ore? Why do you want to plant Chasselas d'Ore? I said, because I had a girlfriend from Switzerland for 10 years, and I was drinking only Fandin, <laughs> so that's why So he planted an acre to do a favor to me. And the wine is not great, but he ended up to do it uh, uh, sparkling, right? Okay. And so, you know, sparkling wine cover all the problem, right? So it's uh, all right. I don't know if there is a bottle here. I'm not going to tell you this is my favorite variety. It's uh, the variety which creates me a little bit of problem with my stuff. Oh, I see. Okay, I got you. I understand totally. You know. Yeah, I don't know if I. No, I don't see. I don't see. I don't see a bottle Gabriel, he's now going to his cellar to get me a bottle of this wine. See what it looks like. This should be fascinating. Oh wow! Yeah, it is. Don't laugh. Uh, <laughs> that, wow! But uh, now the variety which really I am excited about. Uh, is, uh, and I will tell you why, is the Viognier. And I tell you why. When Jefferson go to France mm. and he start to travel, you know, to see what was going on, he stopped at this uh, vineyard called Chateau Grier. And he said, the wine is wonderful here. Uh, is uh, called Chateau Grier. It's owned by Veuve Perouse, right? So I love that he told us 200 years ago how Viognier was a wonderful wine. And I assure you that I can't believe how he was figuring out things that nobody else could figure out, you know. Uh, at a certain moment, uh, he said this. Uh, one day, 
in Virginia there will be too many people and not enough work. The solution is to plant vineyard. Wow. That will keep everybody busy. I love it. I could see, you know, the future. But there are so many other things that he was able to uh, to see, you know. I mean, sometimes people laugh at Jefferson and say he planted a flower garden in Monticello when people were starving. Well, yes, people were working all day on the farm and they were trying to bring home something to eat. But he understood that in the future, the agriculture which made money is flour. And so that's why he was experimenting. He was planting uh, American white flour in his garden and then he was sending the seeds to France to tell the French gardener that there was something that America could give uh, to them. And uh, I love when he wrote to Madame de Tassé, you know she was the aunt of Lafayette, right? Oh. And he wrote to her, he was corresponding with her, and he wrote to her, I'm looking forward to draw a curtain between me and the political world. I want to be a florist. Ah, well, Even understand that when you get old, you cannot deal anymore with the craziness of the world. Well, you know, on the Jefferson subject, I stumbled on a book. I love used bookstores, and we have a pretty good one in Charlottesville, and I was in there, and I found this book, and it was uh, Philip, Philip Mazzi, okay. and it's, the title is Jefferson's Wick, and I always associated with him as the one that came over here and helped Jefferson start his vineyard. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that he was a, a, on the side of the revolutionary side here, he was a patriot, and he was working to supply the U.S. with arms from France and Italy in the early days. And this book, which got translated back from Italian, tells the whole history of how the colonies were established and everything. And he has this huge history that goes beyond being the guy who was brought over here to help Jefferson plant a vineyard. It was fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, uh, I, I, I assure you that when I think how at the time you could deal with People. There was only, there was not even mail, right? There was nothing, right? But he was able, Matei was able to coordinate all these things and travel around, you know, the world and doing things because when he finished in one place, he went to the other one, he went to Poland, right? He right. Went, you know. So I can't, I can't believe it, but he was certainly a unique person which had a lot to do with Jefferson, you know, knowledge and curiosity in finding out new things and more and more things right i assure you that when jefferson went decided to take a tour of france right, right. he asked the money in washington and in washington they told him it doesn't make any sense that you spend money to go around france right and so he said well you know i want to see what's going on i want to see what they are doing i want you know yeah so because he was, he, was, he was an ambassador, he was supposed to stay behind his desk, you know, and go to party, right? Instead, he wanted to find out a little bit more about what was going on in a country which was, you know, pretty respected in the world. Well, let me turn this back to you for a yeah, second, okay. if okay. I could. No, this is fascinating. I could go on all day about Jefferson. How do you react internally when people say, well, Gabrielle, he's the uh, father 
of the modern day uh, birth of the Virginia wine industry. How does that make you feel? I mean, what do you think? Well, you know, when somebody told me, congratulations, you are the father of your children, <laughs> and uh, uh, they are wonderful children, and uh, my answer is, well, there is not only the father involved in having the children, there is the mother, there are the grandparents, there is the environment which is around, there is the school where they go, right? So, uh, to be the father of a Virginia, you know, viticulture or Virginia wine is an interesting uh, title, but there were so many other little things, you know, which help the place to take off. One thing that nobody think about is money. If there is no money, right. <laughs> it would have never started, right? And... Uh, also the fact that Virginia is not interested in industry and things like that. Uh, Virginia wants to stay, you know, the way it is. I was happy a lot. And uh, I can uh, tell you that uh, <laughs> when <laughs> I was telling Michelle Obama how when I came to Virginia, USDA told me to stop it, uh, Virginia Tech told me to go home <laughs> and all this, uh, uh, Michelle Obama said only Virginia would have treated you like that, nobody <laughs> else. So Virginia is a very special place in a positive way for certain things because there was the money, there was the space, there was the love for agriculture. Of course, they tried to send me home because they thought I was doing a stupid thing, right? right. But uh, it was interesting that... Uh, you could look at Virginia in many different uh, directions. And Michelle Obama said only Virginia would have treated wow. like that. Well, I, I'll tell you, I mean, what impressed me, what I saw here in Virginia a couple of years ago when I got gravitated here, this reminds me and feels like what Oregon was like 25 years ago. Okay. Okay. To me, that's, I remember when I was selling Oregon Pinot Noir okay. 25, 30 years ago as a okay. distributor, and everybody says, what's that? <laughs> What, what are you doing? You, you know, and today Oregon is the hottest wine growing region in the country and, and most in demand, and that's yeah. where people are going. I'm not sure what it's going to take to get Virginia to break out so that the the trade, the consumer on a national basis understand. Okay, I can give you the. But answer. I love I love your opinion on but this. But don't get offended for this answer. I won't. Okay, when Monroe asked Jefferson. How, how can I get some good wine? Jefferson answered, stay away from the middleman. Go straight to the manufacturer, to the right. guy who makes the wine. You understand that there are many kinds of middlemen. There are wonderful people, there are people not so wonderful, and there are also people really bad. And I love that Jefferson solved the problem in one second. Stay away from the middleman. No, I've read that about him, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that is, you've put your finger on the issue here. The distribution system in America mm -hmm. is so broken now. It's, yeah. it's yeah. I mean, I, I navigated it myself on a lot of different levels, and I know how broken it is. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to expose that myself and have for years. Yeah. You're right. That is a huge, huge it's an impediment. And you understand that people are now going the direction of using wine. Why, 50 years ago, there were very few people interested in wine. So when something takes off at full speed, then it's the problem. It broke. It broke. <laughs> okay. I want to picture that. Are you messing with the Vionier, or do you want a picture of this? I don't want to get a picture of that. <laughs> My son will go crazy. Okay, I'll bring you another bottle, because ah. you know when this happened? 
the first time in 1989. In 1989, it was raining every day right. between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock, every day. And I remember I was at Jefferson Vineyard, right? Simeon Vineyard. And uh, I walked into the vineyard, the Pinot Noir, and he was start to smell the rot. I said, my God, let's bring everything in today. We were not ready. I said, let's harvest all the Pinot Noir today. We brought the Pinot Noir in, right? I put it in the press, squeeze it, separate it from the skin right away, and I said, I don't know what I will do. I will sell it to a distillery, I will blend it, I will sell it to somebody who doesn't know what wine is. At the end of the fermentation, the wine was beautiful. Oh. And uh, I love that this craziness of Virginia, because it never happened again that it was raining every day from four to six, right? You know, I, was, I wasn't able to make hay. I had 15 horses, I had cattle, you know, mm-hmm. at, at Simeon, and I wasn't able to make hay. I ended up to make hay in November and December because then eventually the rain stopped. But I couldn't harvest the grapes in November and December. So <laughs> I harvested them, you know, when they were not ripe, and I made my first Vengri, and it was a great success because the following year, I didn't make Vengri, I made the Pinot Noir, and so the people start to ask him, why didn't you make the Vengri? Well, because the season was good, so I made Pinot Noir. We want the Vengri. We want the Vengri. So then <laughs> every year I was making both, right? Because some people wanted the Vengri, they didn't want the Pinot Noir. And today, of course, rosé is such a hot category. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And this is, this and is I remember this serious, I serious rosé. <laughs> in 19... 1990, there was this uh, French student which came over to spend the summer here. He has a champagne uh, company, Veuve Fourny is the company. Okay. And he came over and he suggested to call it Vengri, right? So I said, perfect, Vengri de Pinot Noir, because (laughs) Emmanuel Fourny was the name of the guy, yeah. Well, I guess, fortuitously, you never went back to Australia. Well, you know, uh, now that I'm getting old, I feel ready to go back now. <laughs> I don't know what would have happened there because uh, I, would be, I would be in a university probably, so retired and not knowing what to do. I don't know. Were you, you were starting to tell me before we started uh, the interview itself about your family is now taking over and has been running the winery and you've got several of your uh, your daughter and your son involved, that must feel really good. My two sons, yeah, involved. My daughter, no. My daughter, she lives in Istanbul, but she's coming back uh, in 10 days. Okay. <laughs> but you got two sons and everybody's involved, that must feel really good. Yeah. And she might stay here, I don't know. I try to convince her to stay here because she speaks seven languages. So for me, if somebody doesn't speak the language, she could... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Italian, French, Russian, German, Spanish, uh, Arab, and what else? <laughs> so uh, let me finish this by asking another question. You know, you've been here in Virginia uh, 45 years right. almost. You've seen everything in that 45 years. What do you think about the health of the Virginia wine industry if you look down the road? Where do you think this thing is going to end up? Well, in every part of the world where they grow grapes and they make wine, there are people who are committed to their job and they make wonderful wine. There are people who are committed to make money, which is different from making good wine. 
there are people who are committed to drive everybody crazy, right? So that's a different story. And uh, I assure you that uh, I think Virginia has uh, a future. And I tell you what the last uh, ABC inspection was. After you know, the man came and we talked about different things, you know, and when we finished, I said, it doesn't look to me like a real inspection, this one. And he said a beautiful thing. He said, if we are dealing with somebody who loves what he's doing, this is the inspection. If we are dealing with somebody who does it just to make money, it's totally different. I love it. No, that's well, that's well said. Very well, you know. I, I, really, I really found it very interesting because the inspection I had before, I remember the inspector, you know, looking at all the paper and my wife come downstairs and uh, this is a good story. The, he knew her because, you know, he was coming to the festival. So he knew my wife. said, hey, he said, how are you, Jeannie? And she said, I'm fine. Well, he said, we have a lot of problems here, a lot of stuff which is not right. And she answered to him, I'm glad I have nothing to do with that trash. <laughs> so the inspector looked to me and he said, isn't she vice president of the company? I said, yes, but I never told her. I made her to sign the paper. I never told her she's the vice president. <laughs> he said, but, 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 but you tell her. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, um, I wanna, I'll just finish by saying, hey, thank you for giving me your time. Sure. This has been fascinating. There's a lot of material here. Uh, can't wait to tell the story, story going forward and how impactful You've been to this business. Um, Should you wait until I die to do the thing? So no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't want that, that's for sure. Well, thank you. The music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song Acoustic Shuffle under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show.